Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. And I would like to thank our worship team this morning for leading us in worship. I, I love all of those songs, but that, that last song in particular, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me, really resonates well with uh, this passage that we're reading this morning in Ephesians, talking about the armor of God. Uh, but I did want to highlight that today is the conclusion of our week series uh, on the book of Ephesians and the gospel revealed. We've had seven guys that have been part of sharing uh, through this book, and I want to give a, a shout out to all of them. Uh, thank you to John Fund and John Paternoster. There's a lot of Johns. I think almost half of our group is named John, including myself. Uh, so John Lepard, John Paternoster, John Fund, uh, Brent Nesseth, Matt Lawson, Dave Eubank, uh, Pastor Preston, of course, and did I leave anyone out? I think I got them all, uh, all there. So thank you, all of you men, uh, for being part of this series and, and being willing to share. Uh, just to give you a heads up, next week we're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be going through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And our men have already been getting together and, and studying on that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this, this summer we have been meeting every other Wednesday uh, on the weeks that we don't have the summer Wednesday nights. Our guys have been getting together and, and study God's Word, study these passages, sharpen each other from God's Word. And so there's just a lot of behind-the-scenes work that has uh, gone into these uh, teaching through these books. And so we're excited about introducing the Gospel of Mark next week. And I believe Brent Nesseth will be opening us up on that. And so we're really excited about that. But we've been talking about the Gospel Revealed through the book of Ephesians here. It was revealed, of course, uh, through Christ, primarily through Christ. Uh, from, you know, the beginning of time, you know, the angels and the prophets looked forward to seeing what this gospel revealed would be. It was, it was a mystery. It was shrouded from people's sight. They didn't understand exactly uh, what it was or what it would be. So through Christ, the gospel has primarily been uh, revealed that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, living in the passions of our flesh by nature, children of wrath. So the gospel is primarily revealed through Christ Jesus, uh, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, living in the passions of our flesh by nature, children of wrath. And this good news of the gospel is, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is the gospel that we celebrated being revealed uh, for in the fullness of God's time. But the gospel was also revealed through Paul. Paul said he was, by the grace of God, made a minister of the gospel. And part of that responsibility was he was revealing that the mystery of the gospel, uh, salvation, was not just for the Jews. That these two men, the Jews and Gentiles, uh, who were once in conflict, where there was once a dividing wall of hostility, uh, these two men that were separated in, in, uh, in, in a conflict with each other, they were united and made one. And the great news was that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but it was for all, all of God's creation, all of mankind's. And it tore down the hostility of these racial divisions that were in the world. And so the gospel was revealed, revealed through Christ, it was revealed through Paul, but also the gospel was revealed through his church. 
um, with these two men, the Jews and Gentiles. Is this now working, operational? Good. Thank you, Chris, for doing that. Uh, the gospel um, was now being revealed through his church. These two men became one, and through this unity in the body of Christ, of all these tongues, tribes, and nations, through this unity, there was this great witness to all of mankind, not just to the world, but also to these heavenly powers and rulers, that the church was revealing the manifold wisdom of God. And this was a cosmic message that was being broadcasted. And that's a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. And so the gospel was being revealed through Christ, through Paul, uh, through his church, and also in the last couple of chapters of Ephesians, the gospel is being revealed through individual people as they learn how to take on personal holiness, the holiness of Christ, and, and being imitators of God as dearly loved children, putting off the passions of the flesh and putting on Jesus Christ and living according to the Spirit. And uh, that's, you know, we learned about what the gospel looks like in the most basic of human relationships between a husband and wife in the context of marriage, uh, between children and their parents, and children obey your parents. And then, of course, a lot of the early Christians found themselves in, in the context, very difficult context of slavery. And so what does it look like for a Christian who is a slave to live a God-honoring life in even that circumstance? And so we saw what personal holiness looks like on that individual level. So today we're going to be finishing off uh, Ephesians by reading chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. And uh, many of you will already be familiar with this passage because it talks about the armor of God. You've probably seen a, a lot of uh, examples, you know, heard a lot of messages and seen a lot of, you know, kids come up and get dressed up in the armor of God and, and uh, really cool. But I want to let you know that uh, we're not going to be emphasizing the actual armor as much this morning. We're going to be emphasizing what comes before the armor, the reason for the armor. And we're also going to be highlighting what the purpose of the armor is, what it has equipped us to be able to do. And so sometimes that is, is lost as we look at the specifics of the armor. And, and so I just wanted to kind of pre-prepare you for that. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Hopefully you've opened your Bibles and please read along with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. 
I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to you, the brothers, in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Father, I pray this morning that you will bless the reading of your word as we study it as your people, God. I pray that we will know you, that we will know the the depth of your love, that we will understand the strength that you have provided to us as your children, Lord, to be able to fight a battle that we are, are not equipped to fight on our own. God, we are in desperate need of you. God, I pray that you will be glorified as we talk about you and your word. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last Sunday, we had one of our missionaries, Brian Dix, that came in and shared with us. And uh, I shared this at the quarterly business meeting last Sunday, but there was one passage particularly that I really, it resonated with me and I really liked. It was from the book of Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5. And Habakkuk was really, he was struggling. He was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was struggling as he looked around him and saw, uh, you know, just all the evil and wickedness in the world. And it was the, it was the unrighteous that seemed to be prospering, not the righteous. And he was struggling, and he went before God and, and was lamenting to God and said, what's, what's up with this, God? I don't understand it. I see the evil and wickedness, and it is succeeding. What's going on? And God's response is very interesting in that he said, to Habakkuk. He said, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe it even if I told you. So God challenged Habakkuk's perspective. He said, essentially he told Habakkuk, you, you can only judge by what you can see and what you understand, but your perspective is really small. You really have no idea about what I am doing and the level on which I'm doing it. You can poke your head up for a little bit, look around, and yes, you will be astounded with even that little expanse of your perspective, but I'm doing so much more than you can even imagine that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And I think that is true, and I want to expand on that idea and say it's true not just in what God is doing on this earth. I want to expand that idea and say I think that is true in what God is doing has a cosmic vision and scope of what the gospel is impacting and the message of the gospel is resonating not just in this earth but in these in this cosmic way to the heavens and the rulers and authorities the spiritual powers of this world God has a testimony through the gospel and his church that is resonating to to these cosmic powers I really liked it. I think it was John Piper he said you are a light as a church you are not only a light to the world You are a light to the cosmic powers that rule over this darkness. I like that. I don't think we understand the the powerful witness that Christ has intended his church to be. We've limited to just to to the, the testimony of the gospel to other people. But it is certainly that. And that's powerful in and of itself. But it's so much bigger than even that. And so it's important for us to understand that God is working on a scale that we would be Uh, It would be hard for us to understand even if he told it to us. Now, just to be clear, um, when Scripture talks about heavens and the earth, many times the heavens are in reference to the sun and the moon and the stars. Many times the earth is in reference to the actual earth, the physical globe that we understand, that we live on. But in the book of Ephesians and many other spots, when it's talking about the heavens and the earth, it is talking about the two different realms, the spiritual realm in which God lives 
and the heavens, and then the earth is the physical realm in which we live and we understand. And it's really easy for us to think that the physical realm is all that is real. And that this, you know, that the spiritual realm is almost like this imaginary place or in some way is less real. But I think that that thinking is vastly skewed and simply not biblical. If I had to pick a realm that was more real than the other, I'd have to say that the spiritual realm was, is more real than the physical because God is spirit and he breathed the physical realm into being. So the spirit breathed the physical. The physical was born out of the spiritual. But I get it though. You know, we tend to value the physical more because that's the realm in which we live. Much like John Fun values the Detroit Lions because he lives in Michigan and fails to realize and undervalue the Green Bay Packers in a totally different realm. John's not here today, is he, to appreciate that? He's really hoping to be here. But it's important to realize that God is God of both realms. I'm not just talking about Detroit and Green Bay. Of the, of the heavens and the spiritual and of the physical reality of the earth. He created both, and both are part of his cosmic universal plan that is tied up in the gospel. I want to show you this thread, as it, this cosmic thread, as it runs through the book of Ephesians. And it starts in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Hopefully you can turn back there real quick. Because this is an important verse. And Paul is saying that he is making known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is part of the gospel message and its importance and the value and what is it accomplishing. He says, as a plan for the fullness of time, this is what the gospel is meant to do. It is to unite all things in him, to unite all things in him. Now, if you stopped right there, just pause and you're like, okay, what is God uniting through Christ in the gospel? What would you say? I think it would be easy for us, you know, we've gone through the book of Ephesians, some of us might say, well, he's uniting Jews and Gentiles into one man, which is the, the church. And you'd be right, he's doing that. But that's not exactly what all that he is saying here. I think that's a small part of what he's saying here. But he says, in the, according uh, to the work which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, God is going to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. That's not a union of the sun and the earth. Thank the Lord. Because that would mean that the earth would be destroyed. We'd be consumed. This is a unity of something that is in conflict of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Let me show you again. Um, let's see. God's plan is to unite all things. And this is important because our future hope depends on this. This is part of the great restoration of what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. When they had fellowship between the physical and the spiritual realm, when God could come and walk in the garden. In Revelation, it talks about this, this conflict that, you know, that between the spiritual and physical realm finally being resolved once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelations 21, 1 through 3, it says, Then when I saw a heaven and a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. Do you see that? We're, we're in the original, in the Garden of Eden where there was this, there was the, the perfect merging of, of God, the spiritual in the heavens and with man and the, the earth and God's creation that was broken because of sin. And now these two realms are in conflict with each other. God will, is bringing and restoring this unity in the cosmos, if you will. That's part of what God accomplished through Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's part of what he accomplished. And uniting all things in heaven and on earth. This thread continues through Ephesians and Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Now Paul just got done talking about the mystery of the gospel. That the Gentiles were, were fellow heirs with the Jews. That they were one new man in, in the gospel. That God took these two men and made them one body. But then Paul said something I think very important. He says... That the purpose of this is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. But get this. This is the purpose, part of the, the grand cosmic purpose of the church is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We have a cosmic testimony about what God is doing. And sometimes I wonder, you know, what is that significance? How is the church that manifold witness of God's wisdom to these heavenly beings? What is the witness? And I think about that, and I think what it essentially is, is we see the gospel has taken two things that are hostile towards each other. They are in conflict to each other, Jews and Gentiles. And he brought them back together and brought unity where there was, where there was none before. And God is doing that same exact thing in the, between the heavens and the earth. He's having this, you know, he's showing that God has this cosmic plan for his creation. And it includes both the heavens and the earth. I say all this, you're like, why are you talking about all this like cosmic kind of stuff? You know, the unity between the heavens and the earth and, you know, all these grand things that, like Habakkuk said, I, I'm struggling even to understand what's going on earth, much less what's going on in, on this cosmic, you know, galactic scope. And I say all this because it's important to recognize the cosmic significance of the gospel, the cosmic implications, because there is a cosmic spiritual battle that is going on. And you and I in and of ourselves are completely unequipped to be, even, to be even able to start battling this, to be able to fight in this battle. Now, I hate to borrow from the Avengers, you know, the Avengers, Avengers Marvel's Avengers. Uh, I hate to borrow from them, but the earth was in shock to discover that it was part of this galactic battle, waging war against an enemy that it did not even know existed and was there, and they were vastly underprepared to engage in. That's where the analogy stops. That's all right. And I think that's very similar to what we have found ourselves in as Christians in this battle in a fight against you know, these cosmic powers that we never even really knew existed or didn't, at bare minimal didn't really understand. And so today... The goal is to both know there's that cosmic battle and two, to be able to be equipped and prepared to be able to fight in it. In the fifth century uh, before Christ, there's a Chinese man by the name of Sun Tzu. Some of you might know his name, particularly if you're in the military, because he wrote a book, uh, a historical book called The Art of War. 
I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in the art of war, like generals and like at West Point and all these like smart military guys study this historical book talking about what is the art of war and how to fight battles. But there is one uh, aspect in a quote from it that I'm going to read to you now that, uh, that is really, it is famous for. And then Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. He's saying you've kind of won. You've, you've got it figured out. You know your enemy. You know yourself. The battle's won. But if you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. But if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And I think that's the problem for many Christians today is that we either don't know who we are, especially in Christ, or also, we don't know who the enemy is and what is the power of Satan. And if we don't know these things, we sh we, these two things are essential. We will, are certain to succumb, to succumb and to not be victorious in the battle that God has called us to fight. So the first one, kind of doing these out of order in a little bit. But the first one, know thy enemy. In verse 12 here in this passage, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, it's important to, to point out that these enemies are not flesh and blood. We spend a majority of our time fighting people. We spend a majority of our time as Christians even fighting other Christians. But we have to realize that the primary battle that we are in is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle against these forces of evil. Pastor Preston did a great message. I think it was in the book of 1 Peter when we were going through that. Was it uh, Preston where you were? He was talking about the importance of recognizing, you know, who you're fighting. You know, there was that, that, uh, the Roman emperor who sent his men down and they were fighting Neptune, the god of the sea, and had his men poking the sea. And that was like, you know, that, no, they, did, they had the wrong enemy and, and their, their fight was totally futile. It didn't do anything at all. But then you also had another example of, of uh, men who didn't know the enemy and they were fighting themselves, friendly fire. They'd lost the battle because they were fighting themselves. It's important to know who the enemy is. And the enemy is not flesh and blood. It is spiritual powers uh, in heavenly places. And it's easy to think because the foe is not flesh and blood that he is weak. But that is not at all how scripture describes our foe. In John 12, 31, it says the ruler of this world, talking about Satan. He calls him the ruler of this world. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it calls Satan the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 2, it calls him the prince of the power of the air. None of these terms are making it, making it sound like this is an enemy to be underestimated. Satan literally means adversary. I would say adversary with a capital A because all other adversaries are little in comparison to Satan. Because, again, our battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but against these powers, these heavenly powers. He is our adversary. The term devil means accuser or slanderer. He twists the truth and he seeks to condemn. Apollyon means destroyer. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Another term for Satan is Beelzebul, which means lord of the flies or lord of the idol sacrifice. I really like that. Idol sacri the term, Hebrew term for idol sacrifice 
and dung are really close. I was like, that seems appropriate. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John 8.44 says, Jesus said, Satan is a liar. Not only is he a liar, he is the father of lies. And 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants as servants of righteousness. He is crafty, he's scheming, he's lying, and he's seeking to destroy, and he's powerful. This earth is Satan's home turf. That's his domain. Satan's demons have power uh, uh, and influence on the realm of man. We see this in the book of Job, one of the most common stories, I think, that we all know about. And when, you, when you're studying the, the power that Satan has in this earth, sometimes it's easy to you know, take the naturalistic view and think that the, spirit, the spiritual and the, and, the, um, and the earthly realm, the physical, don't mesh. That there's no like, crossover influence between the two. But Job, in the book of Job, we see that totally broken down. Satan in the book of Job, he had fire to inst- he had the power to instigate terrorist attacks. He instigated in the hearts of men to come and attack Job's servants and his flocks to kill the people and take his herds away from them. Satan had the power to send fire from heaven. Some think that was lightning to destroy some of Job's flocks. Satan had the power to send strong winds like a tornado to kill Job's family and their homes. Uh, Satan had the power to inflict Job with physical boils on his body. Do you see that the, the spiritual realm has a dynamic effect on the, the spiritual realm has a dynamic effect on the physical? There are not these two unrelated, non-overlapping realms that don't impact each other. There's a lot of impact between these. Job, or Satan could have even killed Job, apparently, if God would have given him permission to do that. Satan and his demons have uh, the, the power to be able to supernaturally strengthen people. There's a lot of stories in scripture of demon possession. Uh, seven sons of Sceva and Acts is one of those examples. Uh, these seven um, sons of, I think it was the high priest, who had seen Jesus and Paul casting, out, Paul casting out spirits in the name of Jesus, thought they would do the same. And they went to go cast out this demon in this man. And this, this demon-possessed man ended up beating all of them up, wounding them, and sending them out naked. And so we see the supernatural power that Satan is even able to impart into these people. And Satanist demons, even at times, can thwart the angels and messengers of God. Uh, this is one of those, you know, obscure stories, perhaps, that a lot of people don't talk about. And it's, it's in the book of Daniel. But in the book of Daniel, Daniel's going through a very uh, a trying and testing time. And God sent one of his angels to go and minister to Daniel. This is in Daniel 10, if you would like to read through it. And it's, a, it's an interesting story because... Uh, Daniel is he's going through this three weeks of, of just toil and turmoil. Um, and, and, uh, and finally, this angel comes up and reveals himself to Daniel and says, I'm here to minister you to you. He says, I would have been here sooner. And yet the angel, uh, he says, I'll make sure I get it right. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia has withstood me for three weeks. And it wasn't until Michael, the archangel, came uh, and fought this prince of Persia, kind of uh, this ruler and heavenly authority kind of figure, and beat him and allowed that messenger to go to, to Daniel. And so 
You, you see how there's this cosmic battle going on in Daniel's life and it's, a, and it's impacting him for some reason or another. We don't know all of God's reasons for why that happened. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to make you understand that Satan is powerful. This is not a realm that doesn't impact us in the physical realm at all. There, is, there are very real physical uh, uh, Christian impacting uh, effects that the heavens have on the physical uh, one other example is in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan has terrible spiritual impact on this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So make no mistake. Our adversary Satan is powerful. The earth is his realm, and the spiritual forces of darkness have real-world physical and spiritual impact. Know thy enemy. Know thy enemy. Next, know thyself. Who are we in this Bible, in, in this battle? Who are we? And this is the part where I get to, like, hype you up, you know, like, pre-game hype, you know, kind of... You know, patting each other on the backs, you know, jumping up and down, being like, all right, now we know who the enemy is. Who are we? You know, uh, kind of that whole idea. Here, fill in the blank. Who said this? Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Muhammad Ali. Yeah, kind of that like, little pregame, you know, get each other hyped up, kind of pre-warm up here. For the younger generation, who said this? Focus. Speed. I am speed. One winner. 42 losers. I eat losers for breakfast. Who said that? Lightning McQueen. That's right. Pre-race, pre-game warm-ups. Hyping each other up. We are ready to go here. All right. So here it is for you. Pre-game hype. Galatians 6.3. Who are we? We know the enemy. Question is, who are we? Galatians 6.3. I'll read it for you. But if you doubt me, you can turn there yourselves. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, deceives himself. Was that the pregame warm-up you're expecting? <laughs> Revelations 3.17, because you say I am rich, have be I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Another great pregame warm-up. John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That was the worst motivational speech ever. That's why I'm not a football coach at all. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? Don't try to fight this battle on your own. You aren't equipped. Satan is powerful, far more powerful than any of, of us or all of us. And that is the very point. Know thy enemy and know thyself. There's no hope that we have of winning this battle and war on our own. And that's why verses 10 and 11 are so important for us to listen to and seize hold of. Listen to the qualifiers when it says, finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Whose armor? God's armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is little room for doubt here. Don't be confused or think this is God's strength and God's armor and not our own. 
The call to be strong in attributing this strength to God is echoed throughout the book of Ephesians, specifically in two prayers that come uh, before. In Ephesians chapter 1, 19, Paul prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the work of, of his great might. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, another prayer, Paul's praying for spiritual strength that God may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. You see this resonate throughout the book of Ephesians, but also in the book of Philippians. and Philippians 4.13, I think all of you will know this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ, just to be clear, Christ doesn't strengthen you to do anything that you want. He strengthens you to do God's will in your life. It's one of my, I think it's a lot of people's favorite verse, this Philippians 4.13, but sadly it's become one of, its primary usage has become in the context of, of football games or sports games, you know, where, you know, athletes will be like, yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's like, you know, as a football player from Penfield, I can go and play against Lakeview or Harper Creek or, or Battle Creek Central. But have you ever stopped to consider that what God is strengthening you to do, he's strengthening you that you can do a battle with something far greater than scrawny guys down the road, most of which will never go to college on a, scholar, uh, go to college on a football scholarship, much less ever play in the NFL. He is equipping us to do battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. That is what we are equipped to do in and through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. Don't diminish the battle and the power of, of what's going on because in so doing, we diminish Christ and the strength that he is offering to us, his children. I think that might just be part of Satan's, one of his many schemes. And so we need to be strong in the Lord. We can only accomplish God's will with God's strength. And we can be confident with God's strength that we can stand against Satan because God is in sovereign control over Satan. You heard me right. God is in sovereign control over Satan. There is nothing that Satan has that God did not give to him. Satan is a created being. Everything he has, God gave him, made him. There is nothing that Satan has that God has not given to him, nor that God cannot take back. We've got this warped perception. We've got this small view of God that puts him on equal footing with Satan. Kind of this yin, yay, eastern idea of good and evil, that they are in constant symmetry and balance with each other. That's not God of the Bible, and Satan's relationship with each other. They are not equals battling it out. I love this. In, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is being tempted. Do you remember that? He was taken out into the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. And Satan is saying, took him up, Jesus up onto a hillside and said, look out and see this, see all of the earth. He says, I will give all of this to you. In Luke 4, 6, 4, 6 Satan says this to Jesus. I will give all of this authority and all of the riches, I'll give it to you. But there's this little qualifier that Satan tacked on. He says, for it has been delivered to me. He says, for it has been given to me. 
And Satan's temptation of Jesus, he, even Satan had to recognize that the only reason he had authority to be able to give and do this and offer this to Jesus in this temptation is because it had been given to him. There was no other reason. He didn't fight for it, beat God in, a, in an arm wrestling match and be like, I win, I get the earth, you have nothing to say about it, not it. He says, I, only, I can offer this because it's been given to me. Does that give you an idea about the power of God? I love that. Satan only has power and authority because God gave it to him. He did not best God, trick God, or force his hand. Satan only has power because God wills it. That probably brings up a lot more questions in your mind, doesn't it? For all of Satan's power, he can still only operate within the limitations that God has set for him. His authority is limited by God. In the book of Job, what did, what did Satan have to do? He went, he accused a saint. That's what Satan does. He accused Job. So the only reason Job loves you, God, is because you give him everything he wants and he's got a happy life. But if you took all of that away, he would curse you. And God said to Satan, he's like, okay, these are your parameters. You can work with this, but do not touch his life. Do not touch his life. God set the parameters and the boundaries for Satan. His authority is limited by God. Uh, it was interesting, too, in the Gospels, we see a lot of instances of demon-possessed people coming out and recognizing the authority of Jesus and throwing themselves down before Jesus and acknowledging his authority and saying, please don't. They were asking Jesus, please don't cast us out into the pit. Even they acknowledged the power and authority of, of Jesus and of God. One real quick question, though, is why would God give Satan this authority? And I think it's all part of God accomplishing his eternal purpose in and through Christ, his cosmic purpose. Uh, Pastor Steve Cole said it this way. He said, the most evil deed, this is important to look at and recognize, the most evil deed in history, the crucifixion of the sinless son of God was carried out through Satan's influence on evil men. And yet at the very same time, it accomplished the predetermined purpose of God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so we have to acknowledge that. Everything Satan, everything that he has has been given by God. Satan is accomplishing his purpose, and ultimately that will bring about God's glory. And we can rest assured in that. I didn't read all these things about Satan and his power on this earth to get us fearful. I read all those things in scripture about Satan, his power and the authority and impact in the world on the physical and the spiritual to help us to recognize and see that we can't fight this battle on our own. We're outmatched, but God isn't. That's why we need his strength. We need his strength. Let's continue reading Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, we could spend a lot of time, you know, unpacking this section. And I wish we, we had the, the opportunity to be able to do that. But I want to, again, I, 
I'm going to talk less about the unique elements of each one of these aspects of the armor of God and what makes them, you know, individually unique. And I want to emphasize today, not their uniqueness in parts, but what they all share in common. I could summarize that section right there and say to put on the full armor of God is simply to put on the gospel of Jesus Christ, to put on Christ himself. Every, every part of the armor points us to Jesus Christ. The belt of truth, the belt that holds everything together, you know, in the, in the armor. Well, what does is, what is scripture tell us about Jesus? In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The breastplate of righteousness. In, uh, in Isaiah 59, 15 through 18, it's an Old Testament uh, prophecy of the Messiah. It says, and referring to the coming Messiah, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Who are these things pointing to? Jesus Christ. This, he's the breastplate of righteousness that we put on. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 30. Or, or I said 1, 1 through 30. I probably meant 1 through, 1 through 3. Uh, that's a big portion otherwise. It says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that he is our righteousness. To put on the breastplate of righteousness is to put on Christ. He is our righteousness. And this is the same as we go through the whole list of the armor, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Old Testament prophecy also in Isaiah that talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news and publishes peace. That is exactly what Christ did in the gospel. The shield of faith. What is the substance of your hope and your faith? Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The helmet of salvation. In Acts 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name, the name of Jesus Christ. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In John 1, 1 through 5, it says, Jesus is the word. He is the word. He is the word of God. And so each one of these elements of the armor is pointing us to Jesus and saying, put on Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, his righteousness, his truth, his salvation, faith in him. If, if you're not sharing the gospel and, you know, going and with, the, with the shoes, you know, sharing the gospel to the world and proclaiming that. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're not having this, this is Jesus. This is salvation. This is what it means to be saved is to have Christ in all of these ways uh, around you, in you. I want to read this. Uh, this probably states it better than I could. This is actually from St. Patrick, a uh, famous prayer that uh, St. Patrick stated. He said, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I, when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ is in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. That's what it means to put on the full arm of God. It's everywhere around me, in me, everything that people see, everything that people hear from me is Christ. That's the armor of God. That's what it means to be saved. Christ in me. So what is the point of putting on all this armor? It tells us in the last part of this passage, why, what is our task with the armor? In verse 18, it says, 
to pray at all times. I think this is no coincidence that it moves right from talking about the armor to talking about prayer. My conclusion is, if we're not praying, we're not putting on the armor. If we're not praying, it's a direct reflection of the spiritual battle that is going on. The armor is how we fight the battle and how that practically plays out in the life of a Christian is through prayer. Because again, can you fight this battle in your own physical way, in your wisdom and in your means and ways against people that we have been told is, our battle is not against? No. Then how do we win this battle? Through prayer. Through prayer. And what is the prayer that we are stated specifically to be praying for? When we put on Christ, when we put on the arm of God, and we are finally praying, Paul says, you pray for me. And he says, and you pray for each other, for one thing specifically. What was it? To proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. If we're not praying and we're not proclaiming the gospel, then we haven't put the armor on. We do not have Jesus as Lord of our lives working in and through us because this is how it plays out in the life of a Christian. This is how the battle is fought. This is how the battle is won through prayer and the proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to read one last passage from Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Because I think this shows, once again, the, gospel implic- the, the cosmic implications of the gospel and what God is accomplishing in both the heavens and the earth and why our testimony to those heavenly powers is so important. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every human knee? Yeah. Are there any other knees included in this statement? Yes. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And just in case there's any doubt, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now personally, I believe this is not a forced arm behind the back, say uncle kind of confession or admission. I believe this is a direct result of the gospel revealed. God revealing the gospel truth of his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness and love and justice and mercy and grace. When all the rulers and authorities in the heavens and all of creation on this earth finally see God, the gospel revealed through his son Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his work through his church, that all of creation will bow down and confess the eminence of Jesus Christ as Lord. The wicked will bow down in affirming recognition of their righteous condemnation. Did you get that? The wicked will bow in affirming recognition. The wicked will have to acknowledge that God is righteous, even in his condemnation. And they will bow because they must in recognition that it is true and just. And the righteous will bow in humble recognition of their undeserved salvation. It is not enough that man alone should bow before God. God is worthy of all praise in heaven and on earth.